Well, good morning again. Uh, we have been reading the Gospels together this fall, and for the last few weeks, we have been looking uh, specifically at Jesus' teaching. You know, Jesus once said uh, that everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise person who builds their house on the rock. There was another time when a lot of people were becoming uh, really unsettled and uh, agitated and angry at Jesus' teaching. And Jesus turned to his disciples and he asked if they wanted to abandon him. And Simon Peter said, to whom can we go? <laughs> you have the words of eternal life. And I think those two statements are a pretty uh, great summary of Jesus' teaching and of its effect. It is wise and it is life-giving for people like us. So this morning, uh, we're going to look at some of Jesus' teaching during the final week that he spent in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, uh, Mark, the gospel writer, has this as the very last of Jesus' public teaching before he was arrested. So I'm going to read from Mark 12 for us, verses 38 through 44. You can follow along if you'd like where it's printed in the order of worship. So this is Mark 12. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes, who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we uh, ask that what we just sang would really be true in our experience in this moment, um, that you would open our eyes uh, to see, to hear, that you would open our ears and that we would be able to rest in your great love for us in Jesus. And we pray this uh, in his name. Amen. Well, as I, uh, as I like to mention from time to time, uh, I grew up in Baltimore. Uh, I only lived there uh, about 18 years or so of my life, but you know how it is with the places where you grow up. They sometimes uh, have a pretty strong, stubborn hold on you. Uh, and a couple of weekends ago, I was, was out east. I was seeing our daughter Sarah uh, at her school in Rhode Island. And then uh, I saw some of our family in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. Well, I, I couldn't see Sarah until late in the evening when I landed. Um, so I called her and I suggested that maybe I could pick her up and we could get some ice cream later. And I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, it was more than a maybe for me. Um, I was desperately hoping that she would say yes to that so that we could go to Friendly's. 
Now, maybe some of you know what Friendly's is. Maybe a handful of you know that name. It's a chain of restaurants that's mostly in New England and the Mid-Atlantic. Uh, and they serve food, but honestly, I can't remember if the food is any good because ice cream is, is the main thing there. And they have this Sunday called the Reese's Pieces Sunday. Uh, it's three scoops of ice cream that are covered in hot fudge and peanut butter and marshmallow topping. It's finished with whipped cream and a handful of Reese's Pieces. And I'll be honest with you, eating this thing does not form virtue. <laughs> it just does not. Um, but it does loom large in my brain, uh, and it's dear to me simply because I ate more than my fair share of them while hanging out with friends in high school. Until two weekends ago, the last time I had eaten one of these things was on my honeymoon, 27 years ago, when Allison said, and these are, and these are her words, I made her watch me eat it. <laughs> well, Sarah was up for ice cream, and uh, we went to Friendly's, and I ate that thing. And I loved it. <laughs> but the truth is that's only because of the criterion I used. Uh, I didn't evaluate it based on the quality of the ingredients. Uh, I didn't evaluate it based on the cost or the composition of the thing or the appearance or anything like that. And I don't even know if it would hold up to those criteria. But it didn't matter because I had just one criterion. Did it taste like what I remembered from high school? Would it be the same? And it did. <laughs> and it was. So it was basically perfect. And in a way, the teaching of Jesus that we just read together, it's about a criterion. He looks at those scribes and he looks at that poor widow and he decides something about each of them. He evaluates them. He makes a judgment on each of them. And that judgment is the teaching for his disciples and for you and me too. Now Jesus has lots and lots of ways of talking about the criterion that he's using here. Many of his parables are about this criterion. There are other places like here where he looks out and he sees it happening in real life and he points out that criterion to people. Every once in a while he would look into the crowds and he would actually bring someone into the middle of the crowd as a way of expressing that criterion. Before he was born, his mother sang about that criterion. And before she was born, the prophets sang about it for centuries. And sometimes Jesus just comes right out and says it. In the gracious and peaceable kingdom of God, many who are first will be last. And the last, first. And that's what I want us to think about this morning, to see how Jesus teaches us about it here. Think about what it might mean for people like us. So first, the scribes. You know, it is helpful, it is important to remember that this teaching comes during that final week in Jerusalem. To call that week uh, explosive would be an understatement. It begins with Jesus pulling off these two very deeply symbolic, very provocative acts. We call them the triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple. And in Mark's telling of the story, Jesus spends the rest of that week after all of that happened. He spends the rest of that week in the temple courts teaching and, and telling parables and answering questions. Answering questions from all of the powerful and influential people of the holy city. But in the teaching just before we read, Jesus has turned the tables. 
and he's asked a question of his own. It was this big, uh, evocative riddle about his real identity, about his place in the story of God and his people, and nobody can answer it. Nobody wants to answer Jesus' riddle. And the effect, Mark says, is that that great throng heard him gladly. (laughs) And that's important, too, because I'm telling you, church, that's the last time in Jesus' life he ever has that kind of favor from the crowds. But he has their ear now. So what's he going to say to them? Right with that favor coming off the crowds, with that profound quiet uneasiness coming off the elites that he has just silenced, what will Jesus say? He says in his teaching, beware of the scribes. And I think hearing those words would have made the hair on some of people, the back of some of people's necks stand up. Because in first century Jerusalem, you'd be hard-pressed to find a more respected and a more honored class of people, a more honored group of people than the scribes. We don't really have an exact modern equivalent because we don't really honor people like that. But it might be something like saying, beware of all the nurses out there. Right? Be confusing. The scribes were experts in both the interpretation of the law and the teaching of the law, and that meant that they could read and write, for one thing, which set them apart from a great deal of the population. It underlined their importance in society. Some of them came from the aristocracy, some of them came from the priesthood, but that wasn't a requirement. And for people who ordered their lives around Scripture, like Jesus' day, like they wanted to in Jesus' day, for people who ordered their lives around Scripture, who wanted to know how to live, scribes were critical because they taught people how to do it. Perhaps even more so in a culture that was occupied, that was controlled by this foreign pagan power, scribes were elevated as members of the highest social class. They were professional experts in the most important things. When they walked into a room, people stood. When they walked down the street, people straightened themselves and then regarded them. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says they like greetings in the marketplaces. The honor that was showered on them meant that they had, as Jesus said it, best seats in the synagogues, the places of honor at the feast. I guess what I'm trying to say, church, is that if you had to pick out a group of people who were considered first In the world that Jesus lived in, scribes would definitely be in the running. They would definitely make it to the final ballot for sure. But Jesus says, watch out for them. He's subtle about why on the front end. He says they they like to walk around in long robes. You can't really knock them, right, for wearing the uniform of the scholar. But it's one thing to wear it. It's another thing to flaunt it. And I think people got what Jesus was laying down. They like greetings in the marketplaces. Sure, I mean, everybody likes when someone says hi to them. But clearly Jesus means a kind of like that gets things all twisted around. And sure enough, for pretense, Jesus says, they, they make long prayers. They do it for pretense sake. 
And then that, Jesus gives a voice to perhaps an unspoken hunch of the people. Maybe it was all an act for those guys. You know, maybe they don't have our good in mind. Maybe they're working the angles for their own good. And Jesus says, you can bet on it. They devour widows' houses. Now, Jesus doesn't say how they did that, but there's lots of ways that could have gone down as trusted advisors, as estate managers, which surely the scribes would be asked to be. It wouldn't be hard for them to work a long con on a grieving and desperate widow. Now, not all of the scribes were like this. Believe me, not all of the scribes were like this. In fact, just earlier in the week, Jesus has interacted with this insightful and inquisitive scribe, this really thoughtful scribe. And in the end, Jesus looks at him and says, you're not far away from the kingdom of God. (laughs) But for the most part, the scribes proved themselves to be opposed to Jesus, and some of them fiercely opposed because his life and his preaching and the way that he actually was with other people, the way that he actually interacted with people was so opposed to their way of being that they felt exposed and they felt threatened. Now, there's lots of names for what was going on with those guys. Pride, you know, the oldest one in the book. False piety. Self-righteousness. Self-serving. And I think those words are helpful to people like you and me. (laughs) Really helpful. I mean, I don't walk around in, in long robes and people don't stand up when I walk in the room and I try really hard not to pray overly long prayers. But I do definitely know what it's like to be proud and self-righteous. And I'm pretty sure it's the same for all of us. I mean, I, I know it's the same for all of us. You know, we get into situations, we get into situations at work, we get into situations with our friends, maybe our family, and our first thought is often not, how is this all going to work out for the best of everyone around me? It's often our first thought that i got to work this out best for myself. And to the extent that we have the influence or we have the the personal savvy or the smarts or the power or the position to work stuff out so that it favors us first rather than the people around us, and we do it, then to that extent we find that the shoe of the scribes fits pretty well. To the extent that we can work whatever firstness it is, that we have in this world to our advantage over others and then we do it, then church, to that extent, the the long robe of the scribes fits our shoulders pretty well. And so Jesus, beware, is a gracious one and a merciful one. His beware is filled with love because for people like you and me, it's not only a warning to keep our eyes peeled for people like that. It is a gracious call to repentance when we choose that way of being ourselves. It's a call to turn away from all of that and towards using what we have been given. In church, it's a lot. (laughs) Using what we have been given to seek others' good first 
because that's how he means it to be in his kingdom. That is what his kingdom will look like forever. That rule in which many who are first will be last and the last first. So as fascinating as it is that Jesus' penultimate public teaching is to call out the self-serving of the scribes, it might be even more fascinating. I think it is more fascinating, and honestly, that his final public teaching is to comment on a widow's offering at the temple. Mark says Jesus uh, sat down opposite of the treasury, and he watched people putting money into the offering box. Now, there is a preacher's joke here (laughs) about how Jesus watches us put money into the offering box. Um, And I think I made it, so I'm just going to move on from there. You know, after worship, one of the most important functions of the temple was to be a depository of vast amounts of wealth and to be a place where that wealth was administered. You know, it costs to run the temple. It costs to keep it in repair. It costs to support the priests and the Levites. It costs to care for the poor. And so when people came to the temple to worship, they often brought their offerings with them too. In Jesus' day, there were these 13 offering boxes that had wide, open, horn-shaped receptacles on them. They were placed all around the temple's court. So Jesus is people-watching at one of these. And Mark says that lots of people with means put in large sums. Now, that would have been an unavoidably obvious thing. You know, there's no paper money in circulation. It was just coins. So if you put in a large sum, believe me, it made a racket. And I'm sure that made some givers embarrassed (laughs) and maybe other givers kind of liked it. Mark says a poor widow came with her offering. Now, at that time and in in that place, saying poor widow was usually redundant. Widows were among the most vulnerable members of society because in that society, they had lost their main means of income when their husbands died. If If there were no sons, matters became even more desperate. And I think it's worth mentioning, worth knowing, hearing again that throughout Scripture, God identifies with widows takes particular interest in widows, makes it clear that they should be cared for. You know, like we heard in the Old Testament lesson, Psalm 68, he calls himself the protector of widows. (laughs) I mean, you just don't want to be on the wrong side of that, you know? This widow came and she put two copper coins in the treasury. Those are called lepta, smallest denomination in circulation at the time. It's a tiny, tiny sum of money. I got a little bit of help with some uh, back-of-the-envelope math this week. It turns out that amount was the amount that a day laborer would have been paid for about nine minutes of work in her day. Nine minutes. By comparison, that's worth about $2.31 for someone who's working minimum wage in the city of Chicago today, which, by the way, would be fabulously wealthy compared to this woman. It's a small amount. Maybe she could have gotten enough flour for one meal, maybe two more meals. And here's what she did, church. She gave it all away, all of it. 
And that's remarkable, but Jesus knows that there is this bigger picture that's going on. He says, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all who are contributing to the offering box. Now listen, everyone listening to Jesus in that moment knows that's not literally true. They know what she put in. So you can imagine them kind of smiling, leaning in. How is Jesus going to explain this? He says, they all contributed out of their abundance. You know, everyone else that day gave like I'm guessing most of us give. They gave out of their margin. They did not take their account down to zero. They did not take their account into the red. But she, out of her poverty, put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. She did take her account to zero, and it is headed to red fast. There's nothing left. She gave all she had. And church, Jesus doesn't make any comment, not one comment at all about how wise or unwise it was for her to do that or about how somebody better chase her down and give her some coins or about how we should think about that when we do our own giving because none of that stuff is anywhere near the point. The point is that she gave everything, all that she had for the good of the other, everything for the good of the other, all of it. Nothing was held back so that someone else could benefit, and that is the criterion. It's the only measurement that matters in the kingdom of God, the only wealth of any genuine significance. It's the only kind of richest church that Jesus ever told anybody to go after. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. It's incredible that Jesus would choose this beautiful woman to be the object for his last public teaching, but it is not surprising. And here's why I say that, because her gift is a shadow of the gift that is to come. Her, her gift is a taste of the coming feast. It's a pointer to the one who will, out of his deep poverty, the one who will set the table for you and me. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, St. Paul writes, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus held nothing back in his life, in his death, nothing was held back in his resurrection, nothing in his ascension. All of those things were for us, all of it, for our good forever, and to follow him in faith is to be forgiven. It's to receive all of the good gifts that he means for us, starting with the presence of his spirit in our lives. She didn't even know it that day, but she was showing us, that beautiful woman was showing us a tiny picture of what Jesus is like. But Jesus saw it, and he wasn't about to let it go without notice. (laughs) And in that way, she's a model for us in our own discipleship. She shows us what it's like to follow Jesus in faith, because by the work of the Spirit, Jesus is working in us to make us look like she did. (laughs) By the work of the Spirit, he's calling us to repentance when we need it and to courage when we need it. He's inspiring our creativity. He is growing in us the virtue of selflessness as we follow him in faith and repentance so that we can live in love like he did, giving of ourselves for the life of our neighbors, 
and for the life of the world. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you <laughs> would do all of the work um, that you need to do, all that would please you and make you happy in people like us, to make us look more like Jesus, to, to make us uh, see that criterion with clarity. Many who are first will be last and the last first. Help us to see that in this widow. Help us to see that in Jesus. And Father, would you work that in us <laughs> so that we can grow up in our faith, so that we can be a people through whom you love a broken and hurting world. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.